I had a job offer to move back to Vermont. It was a job that I, I really wanted, but I think at that point I had begun doing some mountain bike racing. I had really started to fall in love with it. And I felt like if I really wanted to kind of pursue this mountain biking thing, the job in Vermont was not going to be, um, it wasn't going to be possible to do both. And so ultimately I turned that job down and then I just kind of spent the next few years, like bouncing around the Southwest. I was, um, kind of through Colorado, Nevada, Arizona, um, just riding, racing. There were some months that I lived out of my car, um, really a nomadic lifestyle for a bit. We're um, doing good. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to the Bounce Forward Podcast. I'm Michael Leach, dad, author, speaker, and performance coach, AKA the Be Audacious Guy. And in this show, I sit down for casual conversations with athletes, adventurers, activists, and performers, sharing inspiring stories of endurance and perseverance. These conversations are as diverse as our guests, diving deep into what it takes to bounce forward from injury, illness, or setback in pursuit of becoming one's strongest and truest self. So pull up a chair, get on the trainer, or just kick back and listen in as I sit down with these bold and passionate humans, pushing the limits of what their mind and body can achieve, inspiring listeners to bounce forward with courage and fortitude. Don't call to come back because they never went anywhere. To on bounce to the next. forward. <laughs> on to the next, to bounce yeah. forward, mm -hmm. to bounce forward. Yeah. Hello, and welcome to episode 15 of the Bounce Forward podcast. I'm your host, Michael Leach. It's a beautiful bluebird day under the banner of the Bridgers here in Bozeman, Montana this morning. It's cold, but it's a stunner. After an early season snow, I think it was around October 24th, uh, we've actually got some grass on the ground instead of some dirty white stuff, which is certainly a cause for celebration. So got some leaves on the trees. And yeah, we're grateful, grateful for the weather we got here today. I'm in the thick of it right now uh, with the Galton High School football team, who I've been working with this season as their in-house mental performance coach. We've got a big trip to the Flathead and a semifinal matchup with the powerhouse from the west side, Glacier High in Kalispell. The one-on-one -on -one sessions with the guys have gone well this week, and now I've just got to come up with a good one for my weekly Thursday night talk to the team. I speak to the team every Thursday night after, after team dinner. As they're going into battle on Friday, and this time it'll take place in a conference room at our hotel in the Garden City, Missoula, Montana. We take off from Missoula tomorrow, so we're going to have to bring the energy and enthusiasm in a big way. I'm really excited to finally bring you this episode with Sarah Kaufman. Sarah, thank you for your patience. We recorded this one back in April when I was on a mission to bank a dozen episodes. Uh, so the weather talk isn't as accurate, uh, but, you know, November and April weather in Montana are, are, are often often the same. Uh, but the rest of the episode is timeless. I just listened to this one for the first time and edited this conversation earlier this week. And I'm sure 
you'll all find Sarah to be inspiring, thoughtful, open, and vulnerable as she shares her story. Uh, I'll have links to her Instagram and coaching website uh, for any of you that are inspired to connect with her. Uh, I'll have that in on the on the website, uh, beaudacious.com forward slash podcast. Speaking of coaching, if you or any athletes or performers in your life are looking to build a stronger mental game or just interested in taking their craft to the next level, I'd love to team up. I currently have some availability for ongoing clients. You can learn more about my coaching, writing, and speaking at beaudacious.com. And as always, if you want to show us some love and write us a positive review or give us a strong scoring star on Apple or Spotify, I'd be humbled and grateful. I really want to thank everyone uh, for all the love, uh, the thoughtful notes, the support following our last episode. Dear Mama, uh, Mahalo Nui Loa from the depths. Uh, I'm grateful and I really feel the love, um, which has been a a game changer uh, during these challenging times. Now, uh, we'll jump right into my conversation with Sarah Kaufman. I hope you enjoy the listen and we'll catch you at the end of the show. Welcome to the show, Sarah Kaufman. Welcome to the show. I'm looking forward to this conversation. How's it in Salt Lake City today? Oh, it's great. It's um, it's warm. It's been warm this week. Um, yeah, thank you for having me. And yeah, it's a beautiful day here in Salt Lake. Nice. Well, we've got a we, we we've got a a pretty bluebird day with fifty to sixty mile an hour winds here in the Gallatin Valley in Bozeman, wow. Montana, and we're out chipping away at the snow today. We still yeah. got uh, there, there's over a foot of snow on the on the side of the track where Kamaya is going to be competing on on Dang. Friday. So uh, yeah, we wow. still we still got some weather, and they say it's going to snow again on on Thursday. So we're yep. soaking in this this sunshine, uh, albeit a windy day. So let's let's do a little introduction here. So I was introduced to Sarah by the great Coach Derner, Coach Mike Derner, and Larry Legend. I like to call him Larry Legend, Larry Foss, uh, two tremendous USA Cycling coaches. And I've had the pleasure to learn from Sarah and beside Sarah each month since the start of the new year and our monthly coaches calls, which has been a, a real pleasure for me. Sarah has a dynamic and prolific history on the bike. She has been a professional mountain biker and cyclocross racer since 2008, and she's been using her experience racing at the highest level to coach up her athletes since 2012. She's the founder and head coach at K Cycling Coaching, where she taps into her extensive experience as a racer and combines this with a personal approach that's backed by science as she creates plans for her athletes. She works with a wide array of cyclists, uh, from new riders to pros, juniors to masters. As a coach, she specializes in XC, endurance XC, ultra endurance, gravel, cyclocross, road, and enduro. So she's got a, a rich background and a full quiver in this sport that has provided her with so many unique and memorable experiences. She's also a member of the Utah High School Mountain Biking League Board of Directors and is a champion of all things girls and women in sports. And will be the first to tell you that women aren't small men and shouldn't be coached as such. And thus she does deep dives into the physiology of female athletes. According to a mutual friend who knows Sarah quite well, and he also knows her exploits on the bike very well. As a racer, she was always hungry and curious. And from the time I've 
had the privilege to get to know Sarah here in recent months. It's clear that she's taken that same sense of curiosity and discipline and dedication into her role as a coach. So I'm really excited to have you here today. Sarah, Salt Lake City is one of our favorite places. Uh, and so I'm excited to talk story with you here today. But before we dive in, I always like to start each episode with a nod to my counselor. So as a, as a performance coach, as a mental skills coach, I'm a big believer in the psychology. And my guru, my friend, Dr. John Wimberly, who I had the pleasure to spend some extensive time with this morning, um, John often says that there's only three solutions to every problem. Change it, leave it, or accept it. And one of my favorite Wimberlyisms is when he shares that uh, acceptance is allowing reality to be as it is without requiring it to be different. And so I often say that we many times in life have to embrace a radical acceptance of our situations. So I'd ask you, Sarah, if you would tell me about a time, perhaps recently in your life, where you've simply had to accept something for what it is. Well, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind when you say that is, um, you know, I kind of transitioned away from my own racing in the last couple of years. Last year was the first year that I really didn't race very much at all. Um, and after being a racer for, um, you know, almost 15 years at an elite level, that was, um, you know, a bit of a, an identity crisis, I would say mm. more than anything, mm -hmm. because I, I will say I still want to be a racer. I just don't want to do all of the work, you know, everything that goes into being a racer. I was no longer willing to do that. And so I guess I had to radically accept the fact that, um, I was no longer <laughs> going to be a racer and, um, moving, you know, I've been coaching for quite a while, but moving into this role now more where, um, that's my primary role, um, and accepting that. And honestly, really loving that and accepting the fact that, you know, I was having more fun coaching. I was, uh, felt like I was learning more as a coach than as an athlete. Um, so just kind of meeting myself where I was over the last couple of years and, um, being okay with that. And certainly I, I can't say that I don't miss it and I don't, um, I'm not going to say that I have FOMO, like when I see mm -hmm. racers, we're kind of getting into the race season. I see social media, everybody's out pre-riding right now, for example. But um, yeah, I am okay with accepting the fact that um, that's, that's no longer the reality for me. That was going to be one of my questions for you. So I, I would, let's, let's expand upon that a little bit. Uh, you know, tell us how you've bounced forward as far as transitioning that that transition i think for anybody but especially at your level when you're racing at such a high level when you're racing professionally that's a difficult difficult transition you know i think you talked uh, reference perhaps the, the, that identity crisis i think that's something that we all go through when we're transitioning whether it's a career whether it's an activity whether it's the role as a, as a parent something that's such a big part of our identity how, how was that transition for you i know as a as an athlete that can be a real tricky space to navigate and it sounds like you've certainly filled that uh with a something you're passionate about I, I, as far as the coaching but tell me a little bit more about uh, the psychology of that, the, the, the mindset, the challenge of that transition. 
Yeah, I mean, truly, I think being a coach, you know, in some ways, maybe I don't have to come to terms with it in such a um, kind of uh, aggressive way. It, you know, it's not like I'm stepping away from the sport completely. I'm still very much involved. I still get to live vicariously through people that I coach. I get to hear about these races, even though I might not be there myself. Um, and I would say also like lifestyle wise, I mean, I still ride my bike pretty much every day. I still, you know, part of the reason that I love coaching, I love structured training. I love the, um, the efficiency of it. I love that it gets you fitter than just going out and riding. I mean, I will still go out and do intervals because I enjoy that aspect. Um, so, you know, in some ways the day to day hasn't changed as much as just simply not lining up to race and, you know, doing that, like, how do I measure myself against other people in that, um, really stark way that, that racing is. Um, yeah, I mean, I, Truly, I feel like I have avoided the the transition as much as I might have otherwise, and that I just kind of moved it from an athlete aspect to a coaching aspect. And um, not racing has freed up a lot of time and energy for me to dig into other aspects of coaching that maybe I was not as um, well versed in, not that I felt like were, were weaknesses in my coaching game. For example, I've had the opportunity to learn a lot more about, you know, um, physiology, for example, like I primarily used my experience as a racer to form coaching. And, and now I just have the ability to do a lot more, um, you know, education that I, I wasn't able to do previously. Yeah, that that deep dive. Tell tell me a little bit about that. I love that you use the word stark as far as the racing. That was a note I made. It doesn't sound like this transition has has been this stark transition. You 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 you're very much still in the game, and um, sounds like you still have a great relationship with the bike and your your fitness and your movement and your health, which I want to talk to you a little bit more about. But um, speak to me a little bit about that that curiosity. I love hearing you dive more into the the physiology. One of the great coaches out there, I, I believe you were coached by the, gr the great Mike Derner, who I had the opportunity to spend about 90 minutes with on the phone today, who's doing some mentoring with me. And he, he said that you had this uh, almost um, unquenchable hunger and, and sense of curiosity that he always was inspired by as a racer that he thinks is one of the things that makes you such a great coach. So tell me a little bit about that curiosity uh, as a coach. Oh, that, that's what interesting. That? I mean, I certainly see that in other elite athletes, um, you know, and one thing that I just always laugh about, you know, someone told me early on when I was racing, like cycling is a, is a selfish sport. And ultimately I would say, so is any athlete competing at a high level. I mean, in order to be successful at a high level, we just have to um, close off a lot of other stuff and, and be a little bit selfish. As an athlete, I think that curiosity really serves us in that we're kind of always looking for what is gonna provide ourselves with the edge and as a coach, it's much more expansive. Like, um, 
one something that works for me is not going to work for somebody else. Some something that works for one athlete is not going to work for another athlete. And so that curiosity just expands to, um, you know, if I coming at the coaching as an athlete, it is from a perspective of what has worked for me, how can I make that work for someone else? But it's so much more complicated than that. And so I guess I would just say that that curiosity, um, there's no way, like it's, it's so much bigger than, than what can I learn about how to make myself faster? Cause it's, it'll just, the same thing will just never work for, um, for everybody. Yeah, I think that really speaks to what you say on your side about women not being small men. And that's something as somebody who's who's trained and um, been an athlete with a number of challenges, you know, with an autoimmune disorder, a clotting disorder, a number number of chronic uh, challenges. Uh, it's always been um, it's why I've been self coach is is to go out there and learn as much as I can and be able to put it together, but not knowing it's not going to be a one size fits all uh, approach. Uh, tell, tell me about lunch meat. Coach Turner asked me to ask you about lunch. Oh. Meat. Yeah. <laughs> Speaking about not being a one size fits all approach. <laughs> What's lunch meat? <laughs> um, lunch meat. Oh, so we had a, a neighborhood cat that, um, always hung out in our backyard. Um, and we caught our other neighbor um, feeding him lunch meat. And so we just always called the cat lunch meat. And then pretty soon lunch meat was just in our house spending entire days hanging out with us. And our neighbors never knew that. Um, I mean, we, it was just awkward because we would ask, you know, oh, how's the cat? Like super casual. <laughs> um, but in the meantime, he was spending, spending ex extensive yeah, amounts of time. Yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. yeah. <laughs> But lunch meat moved away. It's really sad. We don't yeah. we don't get to see oh, him anymore. Oh no! Yeah. Oh. Well, <laughs> let's 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 talk let, let's talk a little bit about uh, little Sarah. Let's talk a little bit about little Sarah. Uh, from my understanding, you grew up in the Northeast, I believe. Is that right, Massachusetts? Yeah, born and raised in Massachusetts. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, I was a high school runner and a Nordic ski racer. I mean, I was a very mediocre athlete, and maybe that's where that curiosity came from because I really. I really wanted to be an athlete. I loved racing. I loved training. I really just loved endurance sports. But um, I think I was gifted on the technical side of things. Um, and I mean, I guess I have some talent on the fitness side of things, particularly with respect to endurance. But it was always like I just felt like I had to work really hard and um, there were certainly women who were just as fast or just as good with a lot less work. But, um, you know, as you get older and you kind of accumulate those years of training, um, that really paid off for me later in life. Once it was like I had accumulated so many years of training and, um, learning about training and training correctly. And mm -hmm. I'm not going to say that I did it correctly for, for many years. I mean, just by luck, our high school cross country coach was really just a phenomenal coach. And so I, you know, was lucky enough to kind of get exposed to some good training methodologies early on. But, um, yeah, ultimately I think, um, I just loved it and continued doing that 
um, for years and years. And then when I got on a bike, you know, for whatever reason, those technical skills seem to come through pretty naturally. Not that it's not something I haven't worked on. I certainly think, you know, I do all kinds of skills clinics and dedicated practice, but for whatever reason, that was what I was kind of more naturally gifted with. And, um, but I always worked really hard on the endurance and speed side of things, um, which came along a little bit later. Tell me a little bit about what that was like as an athlete. Just, you know, it's not something you always hear a professional athlete describe themselves as mediocre at the high school level. What, what was that like for you, navigating that as somebody who was passionate about sport, who was clearly very driven and dedicated? Uh, t tell me a little bit about how this, the stick-to-itiveness, the fortitude that, that kept you kept you going. It sounds like there was definitely a, a love affair there, but that kept you going and, and got to the point where you were able to tap into that that engine you were building and that biological durability you were fostering. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, this isn't something that I've talked about a lot. Certainly not. I mean, I'm, I'm happy to talk about it. It just doesn't um, come up a lot. But yeah, I mean, I really just feel like I was a very mediocre runner. I was very, well, I was better at Nordic skiing. I feel like I can safely say that I was a good Nordic skier, but I certainly wasn't like I didn't excel. But I think for whatever reason, you know, those same technical skills that kind of served me on the mountain bike, it's similar with Nordic skiing. Like I kind That's of- So is it the technical yeah. aspect that, that kind of gave you the boost, the uplift over the cross-country so. running? I think so. I think I kind of picked up the the technical side of the skiing that served me, even though maybe the, the fitness side wasn't as strong. Um, yeah, I mean, I will say I really, really wanted to be a good athlete. And maybe that's why I stuck with it for so long. Just this desire to be a good athlete. I, I honestly, I haven't thought about it enough to really think about what kind of kept me going with it. But um, ultimately, you know, I, I kind of planned to Nordic ski in college and I just was, um, uh, I had a lot of injuries. I had a lot of um, overuse injuries at that point. You know, I had been running probably too much, skiing too much. There's certainly some like, um, you know, uh, obsessive behaviors tied up in there. Um, and so ultimately through college, I kind of just ran and skied for fun. And that's when I got into to riding to rehab some stress fractures. Um, and then continued riding recreationally until um, I moved to San Francisco to San Francisco after college. And um, I was working in finance. I was really just riding recreationally. But at that point, riding was kind of my primary sport, I think, because I was staying healthy doing it. Um, just riding on the road. I hadn't ridden a mountain bike at that point. And um, I was, my job in finance was going to be, like they offered me a position in New York because the San Francisco office was closing basically. And I just didn't, I wanted to stay out West. I, I didn't want to move back East. And so I kind of, I just quit, you know, I turned down the opportunity and I um, started working in a bike shop because it was like my neighborhood shop. I had become friends with them and they very kindly were like, you're not a mechanic. You don't know what you're doing, but we'll give it a month. And if you pick it up, we'll, you know, you can be a bike mechanic. <laughs> so that was, uh, that was what I did for, um, several years at which point I think, well, they were the ones who took me mountain biking for the first time. And I did seem to pick it up. 
um, really enjoyed it. And then, you know, at that point I got a mountain bike and I was at a bit of a crossroads where I had a job offer to move back to Vermont. It was a job that I, I really wanted, but I think at that point I had begun doing some mountain bike racing. I had really started to fall in love with it. And I felt like if I really wanted to kind of pursue this mountain biking thing, the job in Vermont was not going to be, um, it wasn't going to be possible to do both. And so ultimately I turned that job down and then I just kind of spent the next few years like bouncing around the Southwest. I was, um, kind of through Colorado, Nevada, Arizona, um, just riding, racing. There were some months that I lived out of my car, um, really a nomadic lifestyle for a bit. Um, that was several years. And then I ended up back in California before, um, I moved to Utah and I've been here for, um, 14 years. So I'm going to circle back here for a moment as a, as somebody who works a lot with young athletes, you know, I work a lot with, with, with teenagers and, um, early 20 something athletes, uh, in that performance and mindset realm. And, and I also work a lot. I, I have an extensive history with overuse injuries. And so, um, I, I've navigated that, uh, with some great, uh, counselors over the years and, and digging deep and, and leaning in to the experience. I, I'd love to, first of all, I appreciate you sharing that experience in high school as far as that mediocrity you felt because i think your story is an important one it's one that i plan on sharing with with athletes and teams that i work with because there's so many athletes out there not having success out of the gate i'll give you a little example kamaya who i talk about a lot to you all and on the podcast she came home from this is her first year in track had her first track meet last friday and her she's doing high jump and hurdles right now and so two very technical events and her first time going over the high jump was thursday night before the meet on friday and it went pretty well on friday but then yesterday it wasn't going so well so she walked out feeling very deflated so we had to dad had to get into mindset coach mode and dad and validate and and what have you but there's I think your story, I would have shared this last night, and it was trying to find stories like this of things not coming easy. I think you hear plenty of stories of athletes, especially at that high school level, where there might be a bit of a physiological freak and they just come out and book guns a blazing and, and experience success right away. So I think to have somebody like yourself who didn't, who describes yourself as, as experiencing mediocrity and then had that fortitude and had that resiliency and had that stick to and ultimately to have the success that, you, that you've had. I think that's a very inspiring story because most of the athletes out there that I'll speak to, if I'm speaking to a swim club or if I'm speaking to a football team, most of them aren't going to have that tremendous success. And if they want to stick with it and stay active and, and, and have something to inspire them, I think you need stories like this one. So I appreciate you sharing that. I'd love to hear a little bit about what that experience was like for you as an athlete experiencing those overuse injuries in my experience i find that psychologically oftentimes the overuse injuries can be even more challenging mentally than the broken collarbone or the broken wrist where you get 
they're six weeks and here's the PT and you're going to be back on the bike at this point. The overuse injuries are a little harder to navigate. I think they can be more challenging to emotionally um, conceptualize. <laughs> yeah, sure. and, and, and so I'd love to hear a little bit about what that experience was like for you. Yeah. Um, well, first, just to go back to what you were just talking about with um, kind of sticking with it and, um, you know, not having success right out the gate. Um, one thing I would say, I guess I, I definitely feel like we're in a place with um, high school mountain biking in particular, just because it's gotten so popular. You know, Nike is incredible. It's, it's an amazing program. But the fact that it is so competitive, you know, when these kids don't have success right away, I think it can be really discouraging. And um, yeah, I mean, just to say that it is, we don't develop as athletes to our peak in high school. And so hmm. the fact that I, I just think it's, it's a little bit dangerous that we are potentially turning kids away from the sport if they don't find success right away because you, they can look at their friends there's so many there's always going to be somebody faster right and it's just it's it look it was a lot easier for me to stick with it on a team of i don't know 20 girls where i was middle of the road you know you go to a meet i don't know there's a couple hundred it's not like going to um these high school races where there's thousands of kids and there's just there's so many faster kids. So, you know, I don't necessarily know what the answer is to that, just to say that um, it is challenging and, and to remember that these kids are not at their physiological peak mm -hmm. um, with this. Yeah, I don't, I don't have an answer for that, just to say that um, it's unfortunate that we're at risk of, of turning some of them away from it. Yeah, um, you know, I think inevitably sports are comparative and, you know, I'm often talking to athletes about, you know, the, the, I spoke to the swim team, the high school swim team brought me in to speak before they went off to state and two of my points of emphasis in a 25, 30 minute talk was racing with gratitude, showing up with gratitude, showing up first of all, but, but showing up with gratitude and then not letting the results define the experience, you know, and I, and I think that can be so challenging and it's, it, it, it's all relative. It's all a matter of perspective, uh, but that, that that's easy to say, hard to do when you're 14, 15, 16, totally. comparing yourself to your peers. And so I think, you know, having people like yourself to guide these young athletes, I think is a, is a, is a beacon. It's a sh shining light. Um, tell me, tell me a little bit now about that about your experience with the overuse injuries? Like, how was that as far as the psychology? Yeah, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind, um, you know, I think for one, I would say one way to excel in this sport, apart from overuse injuries is like, um, you know, like you say, showing up, doing the work, um, that's kind of the, the first um, bar to meet. And I, I think, for myself, when I was struggling with these injuries, the the biggest challenge was, well, if exercise, you know, there's no when when you're injured and you don't have you don't have that outlet that therapy because I think for a lot of us ultimately this is about therapy. Um, I it's like what can fill this hole that exercise usually does, and um, I think you have. Well, what, what allowed me to get through, I guess, was 
I, it wasn't a social thing for me as much as I loved being on teams and I loved being with my friends on the teams in order to get through these injuries, you kind of have to be able to just do whatever you're able to do. And that's usually, or often not what the team can do, not what you can do with your friends. You have to just separate yourself and do what is the right thing for you. Sometimes you're not going to be able to do anything. Um, And in that case, I would say find another outlet, even if it's just walking, you know, maybe you just go for a walk every day. Um, But yeah, I mean, that's what I remember with like, particularly these stress fractures that I I felt like I was kind of plagued with in college was um, uh, a lot of walking um, and then getting on the bike when at the time running was kind of my primary like dry land training from skiing. And so just doing that a lot by myself because it was whatever I could, manage when I was being honest with myself about whether I was in pain or, or not. And, you know, sometimes you might have to turn around before you want to, or go at an easier pace than you want to. But, um, yeah, I guess being okay with spending a lot of time by yourself so you can truly be honest about what is, um, your level of pain or, or what's tolerable on the day, given whatever the injury or the limitation might be. Uh, I, I love, I love how you framed that. I, I, I've often said that uh, I, I have a phrase in in be audacious. I say I'm the guru of go, and when I can't go, I get low. I've often said that all of my major bouts of depression in my life have have aligned with an injury and yeah. and it's where I've taken up swimming, but there's been times where whether it's you got an Achilles going and a shoulder, and uh, it can get to a point where, you know, I've been dealing with some Achilles stuff here recently, so I've been hitting the pool real hard, and then the shoulder can start to flare up. And as I shared with a, a dear friend today, every time I get in the water right now, I, I kind of think, oh man, am I one swim away from losing this for a little bit right now? And, and that feels like being one swim away from getting ripped off your antidepressant, because yeah. I think for a lot of us, uh, you know, the the athletics especially when we're younger can be such a big piece of our identity and and even now um you know for people like us who'd like to continue to train and 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 get after it and and stay fit and stay on the bike or in the water and the in the weight room you know it it is not only i think a part of who we are a part of our identity but man when exercise is the greatest antidepressant I know, and the research, the science out there says what a great antidepressant it is. And when you don't have that outlet or you have it in a much reduced capacity, that's like taking somebody off their medication or really reducing that medication because of all those chemical changes that you're not receiving when you're so plugged in and locked in and and used to that. So uh, it's always, I always appreciate somebody speaking about the emotional and mental side of injury, because not only are you hurt, not only are you, you know, being kept from something you really love, but then there's chemical stuff going on as well. And so um, I think it's really important to hear stories like yours and recognize that, especially for young, young athletes trying to navigate that. Yeah. And I always think about that as a coach, you know, um, just to be aware, I think for a lot of people, I think when they begin structured training, whether it's with a coach or following a training plan, I think for a lot of people, the hardest thing is that 
there's going to be more rest days. There's going to be more active recovery days worked in there. And people really struggle with that because if, if you're a person who's not followed a structured plan previously, more than likely you kind of go out on the days that you're able to train, you go out and ride at this like medium hard level every day. And there might be some recovery worked in there because you just don't have time to, to train certain days. But I always feel that as a coach, like, um, there's a, like burden isn't the right word, but there's some kind of responsibility. Like if I'm act, asking someone to rest, um, if I'm asking someone to rest and I'm asking them to train really hard, like I want to be really intentional about that because yeah. the hard training, of course, we're going for a specific, you know, adaptation, but the rest too, I'm like, I have their, their mental health that I'm responsible for yeah. here when yeah. I'm taking away the training. So yeah, it's just, I think it's just something that coaches um, should be aware of. Um, yeah. And yeah, I mean, clearly you are as well from your own experience. Yeah, I think that's well, well said. I think that's well said. I think it's also so important, especially working with older athletes, masters athletes to help them navigate how to train intuitively, because just like any athlete, a lot of that we want to please the coach and and i think to be able to check in maybe this isn't the day for this threshold workout maybe this this is a recovery day a zone two day and and having that adaptability and uh definitely get the vibe from you that you'd be a coach that's very approachable to talk about adapting and adjusting and reloading as far as uh the, the, the a week as far as the training session goes um let me ask you this so i know you've had some big races I see you've raced at Mont St. Anne a couple times. You got any good Mont St. Anne stories? Oh man, it's such a cool race. I mean, yeah. it's just incredible. Yeah, I mean, I it's not like I got to race, you know, for full World Cup schedules, but I did Mont St. Anne I think three or four times, and then also the World Cup at Wyndham. It, they were always like back-to-back mm. -back weekends. Um, I mean, honestly, the only thing I can say about Mont St. Anne is. When you watch the footage on there, they talk about La Beatrice, that it's a really, it's a famous feature. It's a, it's a big rock garden, but I mean, just like always the TV flattens everything out and the, the, yeah, just to say it looks, it is so much scarier in person. And it's like <laughs> the rock garden that you see is nothing. The hard part of that feature is the entrance that you can't even see in the video. Um, it's just, it's such a wild race course. Um, yeah, I love it. I, I mean, yeah, I'm never going to go back there. I'm never going to race yeah. there again, but it was really cool to get to do it a few times. That is really cool. That's a gnarly course. That's always one of our favorites. And, uh, yeah, I love it. Love hearing your, your description of it. Tell me, tell me about your involvement with NICA there in Utah. Uh, I know it's really important to you to get girls out there on the bike and to expose young people to exercise and movement. I'm curious how your involvement with NICA uh, began and how it's evolved over the years. Yeah, so um, our uh, former executive director was a friend and she asked me to be on the board. This was many years ago. I mean, the, the, um, the league here in Utah is, I think this is the 12th year um so wow. i want to say in like 2013 or something she asked me to be on the board and at that point i had been i wasn't like involved in any official capacity but i had gone to a number of the races and volunteered as a sweep just you know because i was like 
Nyko was in its infancy. The Utah League was certainly in its infancy, and I just wanted to kind of see what it was about. And getting to sweep the races was, um, you know, just a, a bit of a unique perspective on um, what some kids' experiences. And it kind of gave me perspective on feedback that I thought that the league could use. And so when she invited me to be on the board, um, you know, I was more than happy to be on the board and, you know, that's been 10 years or more. Um, and I've continued, I continued to volunteer at the races and then, um, was asked to be an announcer. And so I hear you're on the mic. Yeah. (laughs) And I'm like the shyest, quietest person. It's, it is not the right, well, it is not a natural fit for me, but I really enjoy it because I mean, dang, the races are so, first of all, they're so competitive. They're so well run. And the kids are, um, you can just see them like kind of figuring out how the tactics work because the tactics really play out in like the varsity races, but in Mm -hmm. the JV, um, in the JV categories where they're newer, you just see it naturally happen. And I find it so interesting to watch the kids learn in the moment you know, how to employ tactics and um, how to utilize their strengths and weaknesses and be strategic in the races. So um, that aspect is really fun as an announcer. Um, And I I usually try to get there a day early so I can pre-ride the course so I have some kind of perspective and I can talk about, you know, um, where we might expect to see certain things happen out there. Yeah. Oh, I love that. I love I love that you say it doesn't feel like the most natural fit. That's an audacious move right there. And I bet <laughs> I bet you're doing a beautiful job. One of my favorite as somebody who does a lot of speaking, I officiate weddings down in Jackson Hole uh, throughout the summer. My wedding season kicks off here. Got my first one on April April 24th, and we always we make bike trips out of it. So uh, right. sometimes I got to do quick and dirty day dashes down and back. If Kamaya's got a a swim function here, but one of my favorite speaking gigs I do all year is um, being on the mic for the Montana Long Course State Meet during uh, uh, finals nights. So I'll get to do final nights and that, that that's a cool. fun one. Hi for those up. So I love yep. that. I love when Coach Durder told me they got you on the mic for those uh, those NICA events. Those are lucky, lucky kiddos. Uh, oh, it's so fun. It's it's just, it's really inspiring. T- tell me, anything. tell me what, tell me what's motivating you these days, Sarah? Um, as a coach or as an athlete or i mean yeah Yeah. nika nika certainly um i would say the people that i coach i mean their dedication they're out there every day i i mean like you said i really try to be in tune with somebody's um lifestyle their you know whatever they have going on i always want the training to be fun but yeah i mean i think more than anything, I am motivated to to learn to be a better coach for the people that I coach. I I I am lucky that I really enjoy everybody that I coach, and I I want I feel like such a responsibility with people who trust me with their training because, you know, from the years that I've done it, I know how much it means to people. I mean, they're paying me, but forget about the money. I know that for people, the 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 desire to be a better athlete is more than any money that they're paying me. And so I feel such a responsibility to help them, um, you know, be a better bike racer. And it is such a hard sport, but um, I love how hard they work. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, being on these monthly 
these intimate monthly coaches calls with you. I've been so impressed by that sense of responsibility that you feel, that sense of curiosity, and just how thoughtful you are in your approach. So, uh, and any you. your any your athletes, I think, are very lucky to to be on your team. Are, are you big on uh, routines or rituals? Do you have any, uh, whether it be race day routines or rituals, or just life routines and rituals? Are you a we wake up and do Wordle uh, each morning? And uh, do you have any specific routines that you feel like help help anchor you throughout the day, throughout the week? Yeah, and I certainly feel that as I get older, um, I'm more and more attached to those rituals. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, I think as a younger person, it was like you just kind of any point of the day, you're going to do any different thing. Now, it's definitely, um, you know, my standard day is like wake up, do emails, do training peaks, then go for a ride, then come back, more training peaks. I mean, I do all my phone calls yeah. in the afternoon because as an introvert, I feel like um, I can only talk to people when when it's the right time for me to talk to people. And the afternoon yeah. is usually, I feel like I That's do a, a better job in the afternoon. <laughs> Well, good. You're doing it. We, we nailed this 4 p.m. <laughs> exactly. mountain time uh, slot here, and, yeah. and I think you're you're doing a beautiful job here. Thank so, you. Uh, what, how about how about race rituals? When you're racing, did you have a go-to breakfast, or did you have any? Um, I'm a big believer in positive self-talk and positive visualization, and uh, some, whether it's a mantra, writing something on your top top tube. Do you have any um, routines, like I say, or a specific breakfast that you liked on race day? Yeah, for sure. And I, um, you know, I feel like it's really challenging when, for example, the race is not in the morning, like yeah. afternoon and evening races can be can be really tough because that whole routine is thrown off. Um, I mean, honestly, my like race breakfast changed um, over over many years. I, I wouldn't say that there was any main thing. But um, one thing I guess that I I really like to do that I, I recommend to people that I coach is, you know, race time may be different. Usually I would say it's in the morning, but, um, you, the, the, in the days before to work backwards from your start time and whether you write it down or you have it in your head to plan every moment from the time that you wake up until you get to the start line. Cause I think, you know, part of nerves is that feeling of being out of control. And the more that you can control on race day, um, the more relaxed you can be. And mm -hmm. so kind of having a schedule of, you know, what you're going to do um, really structure. helps. Yeah. yeah, I would like pack my jersey pockets the night before, mix bottles, everything. Like the less that you have to do on race day, the less that you have to think about. Um, I think it just makes it a little mm -hmm. bit less nervous. But all that being said, um, you know, the importance of being able to roll with everything. Yeah, you got to adapt, yeah. adjust, reload yeah. too. Yeah, totally. Yeah. And yeah. so being, being flexible is certainly important mm -hmm. as well. Which I think it's, it can be easier to foster that adaptability, ironically enough, with that structure, with those routines, because you know, something's going to work, you know, yep. you're going to have, you might have to adapt this or that. Uh, you may not be able to, that, that, that oatmeal might not be you might not have got the oatmeal you wanted that day, but you know you, you, you've got that structure that I think can help to make you more adaptable. My, my TED talk is called "The Healing Power of Rituals and Routines," and one of my yeah. my great mentors, uh, Tom Roy, he, he wrote me a nice note. He's a 
professor from University of Montana. He founded the Environmental Study Department at University of Montana. And after it came out, he wrote me a nice note and he reminded me, but don't be too routine. And right. he goes, I know how you can get. He's, he's got to stay adaptable. And that's always been one of my one of my mantras, adapt, adjust, reload. So let me yeah. hit you with the rapid fire here, okay. uh, Sarah. Let me hit you with the rapid fire. What does the phrase be audacious mean to you? I asked Sarah, what does it mean to be audacious? What does that look like to you? I mean, ultimately, I think to not be afraid of chasing your dreams. Um, you know, I feel like a lot of times when people come to me and hire a coach, it's like everyone's almost like apologizing for wanting a coach. Like, well, I'm not really good enough or X, Y, or Z. I mean, we all want to be the best version of ourselves. So, yeah, I mean, to to not be afraid of that, not to be afraid to chase um, mm. your dreams, to go after your goals. Beautifully said. What's one thing you're grateful for in your life right now? I'm sure there's many things, but what's one thing that, without thinking too much about it, just pops up? That's something you're really grateful for. Um, you know, I am grateful for. Well, I'll say I'm proud of myself. I'm really grateful for this. Um, lifestyle that I've created for myself. Um, I love being a coach. I love having people's trust. So yeah, I would say I'm grateful for, for people trusting me um, with their bike racing goals. I love that. What's your relationship with the bike right now? You touched upon that earlier. Um, I don't know if you want to expand upon it. Are you racing anymore? Are you doing any races for fun? Are you just training to train to stay fit and active? What does that look like for you right now? Yeah, um, I have a couple races that I'm going to do this year. Um, the 12 Hours of Mesa Verde, I'm doing that on a team with a kid that I coach and his dad. Um, Sweet. And that's like kind of the perfect type of racing that I want to do. I'm going to do another event called the Grodio. It's a gravel event put on by Envy that has, it's mostly a fun ride, but there's a few timed segments. Um, and then I will race our local um, cyclocross series. So... Yeah, I mean, honestly, I'm, I, I will, the bike will always just be a huge part of my life. That's, that's not going to change. And it's fun to have some goals on there, but I would say, um, I really enjoying like testing new workouts and, um, yeah, it's a little bit different, but honestly, it's the same. I mean, I still love riding my bike. That's, yeah. that hasn't changed and it won't change. That's one of the great joys of coaching. Yeah, testing it out, testing it out on yourself first. Mm -hmm. um, speaking of goals, you referenced goals. What what what's a goal you have in your life right now? Um, you know, I am trying to figure out what the next step is for me with coaching. I feel like um, you know, when I started working as a coach, I I was working under another coach, and then after several years, I went on my own. I created this brand and. That's given me a lot of autonomy. I love the community that I've created, um, but I'm kind of, I feel like there is some growth that I would like to have happen with my coaching. And I haven't quite like figured out, crystallized kind of what that's gonna look like. So, um, I mean, ultimately it's con to continue learning, but I feel like there's kind of a more um, clear picture somewhere. And I'm not quite sure what that is. So I'm, I, there's not a clear answer because I 
I'm very clear with myself that I'm not quite sure what the next step. Goal, goals uh, can be like. a little nebulous. Yeah. yeah, goals can be a little nebulous. Yeah, I, mm -hmm. I love that. I think that's a great answer. What do you think people are genuinely surprised to learn about you? Uh, or perhaps something uh, people might get wrong about you? Um, you know, I think what we were talking about er earlier, kind of being a very mediocre athlete to start. I mm, mean, yeah. you kind of keep like, um, keyed in on that. It's not something that I have talked about much. It's not something that I've thought about much. Well, to, except to say, I have thought about that that was probably the birth of my like desire to learn and grow was that I felt like I had to work really hard for it. So maybe that is something that, that people don't know is that, that that was kind of where this whole, um, curiosity about training and coaching and, you know, athletic development in general, that that's where that came from. Get lost in the fight. I think you've got to have some fight from within. And it sounds like that might have fanned the flames and fueled the fire. And when you talked about being a sweep uh, there at those Nike events, I, I got to imagine that's very different than being uh, middle of the pack. But um, I think sometimes those experiences can help us be more empathic and compassionate and, and more aware of what other athletes are experiencing. So I would encourage you to keep sharing that that story. I think it's a real inspiring one. And if you don't mind, I'm going to be sharing it with, okay, with athletes yeah. I have the opportunity <laughs> to speak, speak to because I find it very inspiring. Where can people learn more about you, Sarah? And, and how can we support you? Yeah, I mean, my uh, my coaching webs my coaching business is K Cycling Coaching, just the letter K, and that's the website kcyclingcoaching.com. Um, you know, I'm on Instagram as myself, Sarah M. Kaufman, and on Instagram as K Cycling Coaching, um, and that's probably where I'm I'm most active. Awesome. Although we'll get those I, I could do links. a better job too. <laughs> yeah. No, I think you do a beautiful job. We'll get those linked in <laughs> on the you. website on the beaudacious.com uh, forward slash podcast. We'll, we'll get it this when we get the episode up. We'll make sure we get that linked. Sarah, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for joining me today. I've really enjoyed this conversation. It's been awesome to learn more about you and to have this opportunity to just talk story one on one. And I'm confident that our conversation and, and your story um, will not only add value and uplift and, and buoy up our, our listeners, but will really inspire them. And, and I'm sure I'm going to be sharing your story with a lot of young athletes. So uh, thank you for your time. Thank today. you. Thank you so much. Yeah, this was really fun. That's a wrap on another episode of the Bounce Forward podcast with nothing but love. I'm Michael Leach. Ride those waves, my friends. Ride those waves. Keep treading water. Get lost in the fight and just don't quit. Until next time, dig deep, lean in, and stay true. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. I really hope you enjoyed the conversation with Sarah. To learn more about our guest today, visit the episode page at beaudacious.com, where you can also dive into my blog, my books, my speaking and performance coaching. If you'd like to support the podcast, the easiest and most impactful thing you can do is to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, and we'd always appreciate a positive review. And if you've got a question or comment, you can always email me 
at michael at beaudacious.com. And please spread the word, uh, share this episode or any other that resonates with family and friends. And I hope that we can continue to grow and become our strongest and truest selves together. That's it. Ahoy ho, my friends. I appreciate the love and support. Until next time, head up, eyes forward, feet moving.